Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining me again for another episode of the Swift Half with Snowden. With me, Christopher Snowden, and as always, with a fascinating guest. I'm particularly delighted to welcome our guest this week. He is Mark Trad. He is Professor of Political Science at Villanova University College of Liberal Arts and Science um, over in America. And he wrote a book which I wrote a review of a few months ago all about prohibition it's a bit of a, a doorstop it is called smashing the liquor machine a global history of prohibition and um i i, I as i say in review I, I disagree with some of its premises um but it's a fantastic book an incredibly well researched book um very valuable book apart from anything else because it, it looks beyond the usa to prohibition movements in in central europe in in africa all over the world um, a lot of people don't realize that prohibition was very much a, a global movement. Um, now, this is not a history show, as you know, folks, and some of you may not be familiar with, with US prohibition. Um, so, Mark, if I could start off by asking you what the conventional uh, view of, um, of prohibition has been in history books down the years, which you then go on to challenge in your own book. Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. This will be uh, hopefully a very fun and enlightening uh, discussion. But uh, yeah, so, so prohibition, uh, you know, comes from the, you know, most people date it from the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which prohibited uh, the, the buying, selling, trading of alcoholic beverages, um, you know, and that lasted from 1919 uh, through its repeal in, uh, in 1933. Uh, and the conventional wisdom, you know, we've kind of gone through a couple of different iterations of it. You know, the first was that it was some sort of puritanical cabal in Washington, D.C., that it was something that was put over on the American people. Uh, but in, in beginning about the 1960s, the conventional wisdom kind of shifted to kind of a, a culture clash, that this was uh, sort of the, the, the last gasp of rural evangelical Protestants, uh, sort of white nativists, um, you know, sort of uh, Midwesterners rebelling against uh, the pressures of modernization and immigration uh, and, and wanting to, uh, to discipline the leisure is always the, the terminology that they use of, you know, sort of African-Americans, of, um, of, of Native Americans, of immigrants. Um, and so that always seemed to be, you know, the conventional wisdom was that it, this was, you know, culture politics. It was Bible thumpers telling you what thou shalt and thou shalt not drink. Right. And in your book, I mean, let's go back to the the, the cultural war kind of thing. So that was um, Joseph Gusfield in Symbolic Crusade. And I, I do share your skepticism about his view because I think it's rather simplistic and it's a bit too easy to just make this a, a kind of well, literally a symbolic issue, a totemic issue that it wasn't really about alcohol at all. It was actually about the fear of, of immigrants and fear of non-Protestants and people who were already in America wanting to try and secure their power. Um, I do agree with you that's a bit too easy. Um, now, in, but in your book, you, um, you very much take the view that you know, these people who were campaigning for prohibition were progressives. I mean, they called, called themselves pr progressives in their own time. And that essentially, is it, would, would I be misrepresenting to say that you show quite a bit of sympathy for the prohibition movement, certainly not more sympathy than most historians have shown to them over the years? Because you're not, let's be clear, you're, you're not, a, you're not a teetotally yourself, right? You're a drinker. Oh, and yeah, I, I probably drink a lot more than I should. 
<laughs> and you you can't you accept that prohibition was a failure. It's not like oh, you're yeah. pro, in favor of prohibition, but you do right, think that these right. guys had a point. Well, I think for me, it was more about sort of historical explanation, trying to figure out something is not right. Like you, when you're when you're reading through something and, and things just aren't quite making sense, you know. And so uh, we we in the states, you know, we have a, a quite a history of thinking that we're right and then taking what we think is right and kind of exporting it to the rest of the world. Um, you know, so I've, I've had friends the last time I was in London, you know, was at this conference and uh, I was speaking with a, a colleague uh, who teaches down in Mexico City. She did her dissertation on why is there an anti-alcohol uh, plank in the Mexican constitution of 1917, right? So the, the most progressive constitution in the world at that point in time. And she's like, okay, well, the Americans seem to think that it's about Bible thumping evangelical Protestants. So she did her entire dissertation in you know, Catholic uh, Mexico looking for Bible thumping evangelical Protestants because that's what we say causes prohibition. Um, and she found none, right? You know, a couple here and there, but certainly not enough to uh, to influence the, the Mexican constitution. Um, and so that's, you know, that just raised this idea of, okay, well, maybe there's something more going on here. Maybe there's, you know, because my area of interest is is Russia, the former Soviet Union, and I did you know my my previous book was uh, it's called you know vodka politics. It's kind of a, a drunk history of Russia, um, you know, and they were the first prohibition country in in 1914, um, and there aren't a whole lot of Bible thumping evangelical Protestants there, and uh, and so I was very curious to kind of see okay, well, the entire idea behind the new book was okay, I'm just going to put the American conventional wisdom on the shelf. I just want to see what prohibition was like in the rest of the world, um, you know, get a larger sample size rather than kind of extrapolating from a single case study, you know, see what it is in the rest of the world. And the idea was um, that it would be like eight chapters, uh, about half the size that it is. And then there'd be like a nice tidy one chapter on sort of what, what did we learn? What can we find out about American politics? And, and one of the things you find, you know, sort of the, the continuity is that it was kind of a, a progressive movement. Um, but in much of the rest of the world, it was also kind of resistance uh, against sort of imperial domination, right? And so it was, um, you know, in, in South Africa and in, in Bechuanaland, uh, Botswana, you know, it was the locals trying to protect their, uh, their health against, you know, what they call the white man's wicked water, right? And you had the same dynamics in, in India with Gandhi, you had the same dynamics in Ataturk, who was probably the drunkest uh, leader in all of world history, but, you know, you had prohibition. Uh, being consistent with that as well. The, but the idea was that it was, you know, uh, you know, recognizing that the sale of alcohol, especially before, you know, in a world before income taxes, that's how states made their money. And, um, and so the idea was that we want, you know, if somebody is going to exploit our people, it should be us, not somebody else, right? And so we need to protect our community against these alcoholic incursions and, and keep everybody else out. And so um, and so that was the idea, you know, it was, it was supposed to be this. And then I, I gave kind of a presentation here at, at Villanova to one of my colleagues. Um, and, uh, you know, and she said to me, she's like, okay, if I'm going to buy this thesis of yours that temperance is not Bible thumpers, but it's sort of anti-imperialism, anti-colonialism or, or what that, she says, where are the Native Americans in your story? Where's, where are the Native Americans? I don't see them. And I was like, oh, crap, you're right. You're absolutely right. They're, they're not there. And so that was the moment where this thing became the giant doorstop that you found. It took me two more years to kind of uh, make, essentially the second half of the book becomes about American politics. Because when you start to change your worldview and recognize it uh, you know, as, as prohibition and temperance as, as not being some sort of moralistic movement, but actually kind of um, 
you know, a, a movement against uh, sort of the worst excesses of, of predatory capitalism, you find that like the America's first prohibitionists were its first peoples. You know, the first prohibitionists were the Native Americans, and then you know, African Americans, abolitionists, suffragists. Uh, you know, on down the line, it becomes this kind of calling card of community protection against you know this uh, this alcoholic capitalism of getting people addicted. Um, you know, to a substance and then essentially bleeding them and their entire families dry. And so that's, you know, kind of where it all came from. Um, and it was really fun to do because, you know, it, it was born of just sort of a historical interest of, okay, something's not right here um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the story that I'm usually being told. Um, and then it took me way down all these different alternative avenues and paths that I never thought I would ever, you know, Spend all these, uh, you know, spend months and years, you know, researching Native American politics in uh, in, in the American West. Uh, you, okay, so you've got places like you know, the southern states of Africa where you can say it was an anti-imperialist movement. Some of the other countries too, presumably not in America. The temperance movement in Britain wasn't anti-imperialist. Temperance movement in Russia, I guess, wasn't anti-imperialist. Although they may have their own reasons. And your stuff about Russia is absolutely fascinating. The, the corrupt way that the 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 state effectively the state alcohol industry works but wouldn't occam's razor just say well actually it was about alcohol right it wasn't mm -hmm. gusfield was wrong when he tried to bring a sociological explanation to it it was actually people don't like it. there are always some people who don't like alcohol want to get rid of it and at times they've had the upper hand over the people who just want to drink what's wrong with that as an explanation that it really is just as simple as it's about alcohol and there's a, these other politics come into it but actually some people really hated alcohol yeah I, I'm with you on on the the Gusfield stuff because you know the idea that you can fashion alcohol to become a symbol well you can make it a symbol of whatever you want you know if as long as you kind of have a compelling story behind it you say something's a symbol and then it just takes away from what they were talking about, right? That, that focus on, on alcohol. But the only thing I would add is that it wasn't necessarily against alcohol. It was against what they talked about as the liquor trade, you know, the liquor traffic. It wasn't the stuff in the bottle necessarily. It was, you know, uh, people making money off of it and, and uh, you know, sort of uh, making, you know, making money off of other people's misery was the thing. So I think I mentioned in the book, you know, like the, the, uh, the foremost American prohibitionist uh, organization was the, the Anti-Saloon League. Right, you know, they were against the saloon, and so like Gusfield is like, well, the saloon was it, it was a symbol. It was a symbol of male leisure and a symbol of all this. No, it was the saloon. That was the place where they made the money. Uh, you know, getting uh, getting men drunk and then taking all their money away. Right. So they didn't call it. It wasn't the anti leisure drinking society. It was the anti saloon. They're very explicit about this. But wasn't there an element um, of spin in that? Right. That yeah. they're, they're actually they were against alcohol, but they realized that the saloon was probably the least acceptable face of the alcohol business. So they said, well, we won't say that we're anti drinking, even though we are. We'll just say we're anti saloon because that'll get more people on side. And if they were truly just anti saloon, why didn't they just close the saloons? Why were they? Why were they banning mail order sale of, of alcohol and things like this? Yeah, and so that becomes you know very interesting to see you know like the, the focus is always on the saloon, um, and then you know people would sort of utilizing that that framework uh, that this is some sort of you know kind of a manipulative thing that they're just kind of cloaking their uh, their actual intentions. We'll, we'll kind of point out that you know some people would ultimately utilize alcohol in different ways, right? So so prohibitionists. Um, one of the, my favorite guys is Pussyfoot Johnson. I'm going to work on his biography next. Oh, great. Um, you know, he says, you know, I, I, I don't mind taking a drink every now and then. Uh, you know, I, he drank when he was thirsty in the desert. 
you know, Tolstoy in, in Russia was, a, a, you know, a, a probably the, the biggest temperance voice in, in Russia. And he would, you know, have, have some wine uh, with, with dinner. And, and uh, you know, when he had a cold, he'd drink some whiskey. Uh, but the idea was that he wasn't supporting sort of the liquor industry, sort of, you know, the, the, the czarist government that's making money off of this or the, you know, the, uh, you know, the fat cat capitalists who are making money off of people's misery in that sort of way. And so, you know, it's, it's easy for us to kind of look back on that and say, oh, well, they're hypocrites, you know, that they're, they're preaching one thing and then doing the other. Um, but it also makes a lot more sense if you recognize that, oh, you know, the, you know, the, the, the saloon of old really was kind of a scourge on the local community. It really was, you know, the, one of the things I talk about in the conclusion of the book is, you know, what I call the, the you know, the Ted Danson effect. Uh, you know, here in the United States, we kind of, you know, we've got Ted Danson, he had this show Cheers about this Boston pub, uh, you know, where, you know, uh, people come in at the end of a long day and, and the, you know, the, the bartender's there to bend your ear and listen to your sob stories and then have a couple drinks and then pack you in a, a cab and send you on. You know, he's a good guy, right? You know, and I think that's kind of what we're all used to. Uh, but like before uh, prohibition and before sort of regulation in other countries, including the UK, you know, pubs were awful places you know th that was the the sort of the hotbed of the local um you know uh, you know local prostitution and gambling rings you know and and, and whatnot so it was very interesting to see you know like wow this was really really bad and you didn't have to be sort of a, a dyed in the wool you know uh carry nation type uh to uh to, to recognize that wow this is really really bad for you know for the for the local community personally i think that you know um you know that uh, prohibition definitely went too far um, you know, and I think the, the actual substance of it, uh, you know, kind of took on a life of its own in, in some ways, you know, when it came to like the Volstead Act, which, in, in, you know, essentially enacted it here in the United States. There were a lot of debates as to, okay, well, how much alcohol can we allow? Can you allow for light beer? Does that count? You know, because much of temperance was not so much against beer and wine as it was against, um, you know, distilled liquors, uh, you know, vodkas, rums, whiskeys, gins. Th that was the stuff that, you know, people were like, wow, this is of a potency that's just, you know, light years ahead of fermented beverages. And so, you know, when it came to the actual substance of the Volstead Act, suggesting that I think it was point 0.2% uh, alcohol by volume, a lot of people were surprised by that because they're like, wait, we signed up for um, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps restrictions on the whiskey trade, um, but maybe, you know, leave the sacramental wines alone, maybe leave the workers beers alone, you know, so at the pub after a long day of, you know, in the, uh, in the factories and whatnot. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of moving parts. Isn't that in itself interesting, right? The, the people got oh, yeah. caught in this sort of bait and switch. They believe this rhetoric coming from the temperance lobby, the prohibition lobby, and once that lobby got the upper hand, they actually revealed who they really were. Yeah, you could look at it that way, you know. And, you kind of, uh, I, you know, I mean, one of the reasons I disagree with some of what you say is because it seems to me, you know, reading the book, I, having read quite a lot of you know, prohibition literature over the years, I wrote a bit of a book about it myself over a decade ago. Um, a lot of your language, you're always talking about just going from the very title, smashing the liquor machine. That's a very kind of prohibitionist. Uh, it's very prohibitionist terminology, you know, and you often use the words exploitative or predatory when you're talking about the liquor traffic, the liquor trust, whatever it may be. Um, but 
it's it, it might be all well and good for someone like Pussyfoot Johnson, who's in a position where maybe you can get a drink every now and again. But if you're just a normal working man or woman who wants to get a drink, how are you supposed to do that without there being an alcohol industry? This is my problem. You see, the, the, the prohibitionist people always frame this as being, you know, it's us, the little guys against this big evil industry. And no doubt there were all sorts of problems with the with the booze industry back then. But without it, it's not actually possible for somebody living in a New York tenement flat to, to, to get a drink at all. If you're a farmer, you can make your own cider. That's all well and good. If you've got a bit of money, maybe you can find some booze that's been stashed away in a cellar somewhere. But the, the argument that you make in the book, which is that these people, A, they weren't really anti-drinking. They were just an anti-alcohol industry. And B, they weren't really against freedom. I want to come on to your arguments about liberty in, in a moment. Um, it seems to me that they were very much anti-alcohol, and that was revealed really when they got any element of power in their hands, and that the freedom to, to buy something is indivisible from the freedom to sell it. So you can't just say, well, we're just going to stop this nasty industry from selling it. We're not taking away anyone's freedom, because in effect, you are taking away the freedom of normal people to buy a drink. Mm -hmm. So you want to hit on that one first, or should yeah. we go? Yeah, the freedom is, you know, I'll, I'll give you like an insight to this whole thing. Um, that's the position, you know, my wife took, you know, for, for years on this, that, you know, how can you disaggregate between the freedom to buy something and the freedom to sell something? It's just the same thing. Um, and, and so, you know, every time that I, I would work on something and it'd be like, oh, this is what it's, what's going on in, in Sweden or in Germany or in, in, in Belgium or whatnot. And, and she would be sort of, you know, the one who's like, I understand what you're saying, but there's still no difference. There's no difference between the right to buy and the right to sell, uh, and 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 all that. Um, and so the book, the book title originally wasn't supposed to be, you know, smashing the liquor machine. That actually came from, um, you know, some. Uh, it really did was a phrase that was found in the temperance literature. Uh, I originally wanted to call it uh, the global war on booze, right, with a focus on the actual alcohol itself. Uh, Lisa McGurr has a book called The War on Alcohol. Um, and, you know, when, as I got into it, uh, I recognized more and more that it really, again, wasn't so much about the stuff in the bottle as much as it was about the entire system, you know, the, the, the political machinations, the, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, the, the um, you know, the kind of corruption that it engenders and, and all that. Uh, but to get to your point, yeah, I still kept coming back to this, this whole notion of how can, you know, these people have possibly, um, been able to say kind of with a straight face that they're they're not against alcohol but they're against the, the predatory capitalism of selling people alcohol because ultimately those are the same thing right um and so one of the things that that, that kind of my aha moment on this i was reading some um some articles uh in this international journal uh by a couple of alcohol control uh researchers in in finland and they gave us this argument that um uh that in you know, Scandinavia in particular, uh, that they look at alcohol control in a different way than we do in the United States and in the UK. Uh, and they trace it back to sort of the, the rise of that kind of Hayekian neoliberalism, uh, you know, the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, uh, that, that kind of suggests that any infringement upon someone's economic liberties is necessarily an infringement upon their political liberties as well. Um, and they said, well, we don't have that in, in um, you know, in, uh, in Sweden, and we don't have that in Finland. And so we don't quite vilify people the same way. And I, I, I was like, oh, that, 
makes sense. The idea that we used to have kind of a, um, a you know, we used to have political liberties over here, you know, freedom of uh, thought, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, then we had sort of, you know, the economic liberties of Adam Smith, wealth of nations, all that. And there was kind of a firewall between them, um, but only in the United States and, and, and uh, the UK to some degree, uh, with the rise of you know sort of this neoliberalism, Thatcherism, Reaganism, and we've all kind of grown up with this, this this understanding that of course you know liberty is liberty and always has been liberty, um, you know the liberty to buy and sell. But if you look back at the you know not just the arguments the temperance people were making, uh, but the actual you know uh, I guess findings and and uh, the declarations of the U.S. Supreme Court at that point in time. Uh, really were on that side. They recognized that, you know, there is no political liberty, uh, you know, there is no political freedom to sell things uh, that would be harmful to the, uh, to the population uh, in the Constitution, right? It's not enumerated anywhere in there. Um, and so, you know, that's how a lot of the stuff, it wasn't just sort of, again, this kind of small cabal of, of uh, you know, Protestants. It was kind of a recognized political understanding at that point in time that uh, that you know that these are separate things. You know that your freedom to buy and sell is not absolute, and it's certainly not something that's ensconced in our political documents. Um, and so that's something that we've kind of just kind of blurred over all the time. Uh, and one of you know the things that I kind of you know this is I guess more of an issue of me trying to get people today to understand like how people hundred years ago could have thought this way. And it's not so much that they are crazy or not so much that they are wrong, but it's like, we're looking through kind of a historical distortion that our sort of modern day conceptions of freedom and liberty are pretty different from what they conceive freedom and liberty to be. And so we, um, you know, uh, since we're living in the present, we assume that freedom is freedom and everybody has always had the same conceptions of it ever, you know, forever and ever. Um, without recognizing how these things have changed up and down over time. But even if one accepts that, and I, I think I probably do accept that commercial freedoms are probably less protected than, for example, the, the freedom of speech or something like that in the USA, at least. Um, but that still doesn't get you around the problem that in practice, if you destroy a legal industry, then I can no longer legally buy something. And that is a freedom that I've, I've been has been removed from me and and anything else seems to me to be sophistry really um that you know i I do want to buy alcohol lots of people wanted to buy alcohol in the usa i'm pretty sure that during prohibition a lot of people felt that their liberty had been restricted by by this right so it's not just it's not just us now having gone through thatcher and reagan that made people feel like this it is a genuine liberty that's been been taken away however much they may have dressed it up in in different arguments at the time Sure. And that's for me, it's, you know, like I said, I'm a, uh, after this whole thing, I'll probably go crack a beer myself, um, you know, and, and, uh, and whatnot. So for me, it wasn't so much about trying to, um, you know, to, to uh, see what sort of values or understandings, present day understandings we have here. It's it, for me, it was just trying to figure out like this, this historical enigma, this very bizarre thing that happened in our, you know, history and try to figure out, okay, how was that even possible because again having grown up in this this environment it seems so ridiculous it seems so unlikely you know and it seems so you know practically anti anti-american to, to say you know that they want to take away your freedom that they want to take away your liberty well if that's true and that's kind of where i started with this whole thing then then how is that even possible right that to get you know a, a constitutional amendment passed and to get all these people uh, associated with it and so certainly it wasn't you know um, 
overwhelming. And certainly it wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't like, you know, 95% of the people said, right, we're on board with this whole thing. Um, you know, and there's, it's, it's kind of hard to measure. We don't have, you know, public opinion polls that go back that far. Uh, but certainly, yeah, there were people who were vehemently against it, and they were arguing that same um, that same argument of of freedom and liberty. And actually, where I, you know I trace it to in the book um, goes back to John Stuart Mill. Uh, you know, his on liberty is if you go back and read it, it is very much an anti-prohibition um, you know pamphlet. That's what he was writing against was against the the prohibition of alcohol, which started with the main law in in the United States in 1851, started to wash up a little bit in, in the UK. And, uh, and and John Stuart Mill just kind of puts a smackdown on it, right? Based upon these basic sense of, uh, of, of liberty and freedom uh, that has kind of become that mainstay, right? That's uh, that- well, That was way of... back in 1859, I think, right? So this is long before the prohibitionists. So clearly the idea that the freedom to buy and sell alcohol was an issue of liberty existed pre-Hayek, for example. Right, right. But like, it was a multiplicity, right? So people are arguing this back and forth. And I think uh, a, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of Americans, uh, anti-prohibitionists, um, you know, uh, were standing up for that based upon principle. And, and so, you know, you had anti-prohibitionists who were part of that liquor industry, to be sure, and it was self-interest in some degree, but also a lot of people who were earnestly arguing on behalf of broader political principles. And, uh, you know, again, you know, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty was kind of their, well, their Bible, you know, for, for that, because it was written explicitly as an anti-prohibitionist tome. It's my Bible as well, I have to tell you. Um, only got about five minutes left. I want to ask you about how you view um, alcohol policy today, what you think the ideal system is. Clearly, it's not prohibition. Uh, reading between the lines, I, I sense that you had a bit of sympathy for a more Scandinavian style of of uh, alcohol policy, maybe state-owned shops, state-owned industry. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. You know, I don't have like a, a personal prescription. Um, aside from, I could see where you get like the, the sympathies, especially for the the Swedish model. Um, yeah. Because again, if you go back 150 years ago, Sweden kind of looked like Russia. Uh, you know, a drunken backwoods on the periphery of Europe, uh, and they you know adopt this system that's. You know, even though they had uh, in, in the Riksdag, two thirds of the members were card carrying temperance members, they did not institute a prohibition, but rather a system of alcohol control that seemed to minimize a lot of the social harms without, uh, you know, impeding overly the uh, access to alcohol. People still had access. Um, you know, I thought that that was, you know, that seemed to be a good solution to the problems as they existed at that point in time for those particular people, right? Um, and the United States was interesting because it allowed, you know, we had, uh, you know, state level uh, variety, right? So you had some states were dry states, you had some that were kind of liquor control states, you had other ones that were high license states where, you, you know, and so people could kind of see how all these different alternative policy systems were playing at the same time, and kind of measure their outcomes in different ways, right? And so, um, so I think the the ultimate, and then of course after prohibition ends in 1933, it kind of snaps back to control at the state level, and you can kind of look at those different sort of policy arrangements. Personally, I think uh, you know dry states uh, kind of are an abomination, especially there's still dry states, dry counties mm -hmm. um, in the American South, uh, which are just just awful. You know, there's some of the poorest communities anywhere uh, in the United States tend to be the dry counties. Um, and, uh, you know, but I do see, you know, there's something to be said for, uh, you know, a happy medium between, you know, total prohibition 
and total kind of uh, unfettered free market. Uh, you know, something something in the middle. Of course, I don't know exactly where that middle would be, and it would probably vary from uh, from one community to another and one state to another. But you think some of the U.S. states are about right these days? Yeah, I mean, it's. <laughs> It's, it's fun because, you know, when you go from one state to another, you don't quite understand what the alcohol laws are, you know, so I moved out here. I'm from Iowa in the Midwest originally. Uh, I moved out here to Pennsylvania and I went to, you know, when we were scouting out uh, homes in the area, we went to, I went to a beer store and I went and grabbed a six pack of beer and they looked at me funny. And I was like, what? They said, well, this is a beer store. You can't buy that. I'm like, it's beer. I'm in a beer store. They said, well, here in Pennsylvania, you can if you go to a beer store, you can only buy it by the case. You have to buy an entire case of alcohol. I don't know if that was like a holdover, like you had to confront the amount of alcohol that you're about to drink or something like that. Uh, but as it was, you know, the beer stores, you had to buy cases. Everything else, you had to go to a bar and pay like retail uh, instead of just getting like, a, you know, and it's the same, I guess, with wine as well. So you had wine stores. So they liquor they stores. force you to buy more than you want, effectively. This, yeah. is, a, this is a pro-drunken policy route. Yeah, and so it's, it's changed. Uh, we're making progress. I think six years ago, they kind of started to loosen up. Now you can buy six packs at the at your grocery store and uh, you know, all over the place. But uh, but yeah, just like these weird remnants of the past uh, yeah. that, that kind of uh, come out in, in different ways. But uh, certainly I'm not a, a prohibitionist. And again, those those dry counties in, in the South. I still remember one of my, my formative, I was in uh, in Arkansas in a, in a dry county uh, where my grandparents had had um, had retired to uh, and I was with my uncle who was kind of local to that area of Arkansas and we had to drive I think it was 40 miles each way just to get to the state line to buy alcohol and it was a big family thing so we you know piling all sorts of alcohol into the car um, and my uncle was explaining to me he says you know in, in the state of Arkansas um, you can get any measure on the ballot as a statewide ballot initiative uh, all you have to do is gather 10,000 signatures. And, and he says, except if you want to try to reform the alcohol laws, then you have to get 100,000 signatures, which is just prohibitive to try to, to, to amass that kind of thing. And he goes off on this rant. He says, it would be easier for me to put on a ballot measure that, that you know, mandates there be a brothel next to every church in the state than to actually have you know, the ability to, uh, to have some wine with dinner. You know? And uh. so it's, I wonder if there's a bootleggers and Baptists element to that as well. Just yeah, quickly before sure. we go, um, you don't, I don't think you mentioned Iceland in, in your book. I was there a few years ago. Have you followed their story of prohibition? Because I, I found it hilarious, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was at a, a conference in, in, in Milan and I you know, sort of worked with this, this guy from Iceland who wrote like a, a whole thing on uh, the Icelandic. So they had prohibition for a while until the, uh, until the Spanish uh, pressured them that they would not buy their cod, the fish. I think, or buy, yeah. buy their fish until they, they liberalized their, uh, their their policies. And so, so they, they legalized allow, wine at that point. They legalized wine. But and they didn't they legalize legalized. beer until 1989. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's 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 crazy, you know, in, in some ways to, to look at these kind of this, these historical elements. Uh, but yeah, the Iceland story is, yeah, another one of those kind of little crazy remnants of history that, uh, that are really fascinating to try to understand. And to this day, it's very, very expensive to buy, buy any alcohol in Iceland, I can tell you. I, I think, having been in one of their state-owned uh, off-licenses, we'd call them in, in the UK, I'm pretty sure they're not allowed to keep the beer in the fridge either. They were all on big pallets 
mm. in a room that was notably colder than the rest of the the, the building presumably as some were trying to get around this uh, this uh, ban on keeping it in the fridge we're up uh, we're out of time mark it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you i would recommend anybody if you're interested in the subject of prohibition to have a look at this uh, this very fine book uh controversial book and um and see what you think but mark it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you it's a pleasure reading your book um thank you for taking my constructive criticism uh well and uh, i hope to speak to you again sometime you at home take care we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a uh, with another interview uh, in the meantime if you'd like to donate to us please do you know how to do that ia.org.uk slash donate or patreon.com slash ia london thank you for watching thank you to our donors take care and goodbye